Welcome to the Mercy House University podcast. This is part two, episode two of Can We Trust the Gospels? So last week we talked about Jesus' trial and his death and burial. And now we get to get to the exciting and encouraging parts. Austin is going to lead us through the beginning of a discussion about Jesus' resurrection and some of the historical evidence for his resurrection. Yeah. Austin, cool. take us away, bud. Um, all right. So I wanted to start out with the question of why is it important that we talk about the resurrection as a historical event? The claim about the resurrection is that Jesus, who died, was buried, uh, bodily, physically came back to life or, or had in a, in even a new form of life in a sense, a resurrected life. Um, and that this wasn't simply a spiritual or kind of metaphorical resurrection. Um, and why, why is this important? Well, you know, some have thought about, well, you know, Jesus, he's, he inspires us because he, he lives on in this way that uh, tells us that there is, there's hope in suffering or there's hope in, in death and, and maybe we'll live on too in some kind of spiritual way or something. Um, and so there, there've been these various, uh, ways of interpreting the resurrection metaphorically. Um, and we're making a, a stronger claim than that, right? That, that, that that's not a, enough. That doesn't actually give us the, the hope that we're talking about. And that's not actually what the evidence historically points to. Um, so there have been, even though there were some even fairly early Gnostic views on the resurrection that, you know, they, they saw the, the body is bad. So God's Messiah, either he didn't really have a physical body in the first place. That's more of an issue for Christology. But that when he resurrected, he, he had more of this spiritual body. He didn't have a physical body anymore because he was kind of transcending physicality. Um, and Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, makes it very clear that this view is not sufficient. Uh, so he's one of the first 20, first century leaders of the Christian church. So he's talking about the, the physical resurrection, and he says, chapter 15 of the first letter to the Corinthians, reminding you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Uh, so then he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received. And here he introduces, uh, what most scholars consider to be a very, very old creed. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Uh, so then he goes on to say in verse 14, If Christ has not been raised, that our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And in 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So for Paul, everything seems to hinge on this claim that Jesus Christ was, was physically raised uh, so much so that he appeared and was seen by and interacted with all of these people. 
Uh, and he's saying this is the core truth, the core claim, historical claim of the Christian faith. So we're going to explore that topic. This um, We're going to look at those claims that Paul's making, that Jesus really did rise from the dead, and that he really did appear to these people. So we, we talked about last week again that, that Jesus died uh, and that he was buried. So this question arises, well, was there really an empty tomb, right? Because if people are claiming Jesus is resurrected, that seems some, like something that is uh, historically falsifiable, right? We go to the tomb, we find a body, well, jigs up, you're wrong, clearly, <laughs> here we go, he didn't resurrect. Uh, so this is the, the thing that we need to first grapple with. Um, I think it's important to note that this, this claim that the tomb was empty was something that was proclaimed throughout the city of Jerusalem, the same city in which Jesus himself was buried. Right? So this isn't a claim that's being made on the other side of the Mediterranean. Right? Like, oh, hey, there was this guy, he died and was you know, buried, and, but hey, he resurrected. This is happening down the street from where all of these events took place. So if this claim is being made, people can go check the tomb. This is a claim that is falsifiable. Uh, another point about this claim, uh, and this gets into what we've called the uh, criterion of embarrassment, is that the earliest people to have witnessed and passed on this claim that the tomb is empty uh, were women. And women at the time were considered unreliable witnesses. They weren't allowed generally to testify in court. Um, and so this is something that is recorded in the Gospels, that women were the ones who first saw the empty tomb and reported that to the rest of the early disciples. And that seems like if you're trying to back up your story, you wouldn't have the basis of this claim, at least initially, being on testimony of these women, um, because they wouldn't have been considered reliable testimony at the time. So the, the point being then that this isn't a story they, that they would have made up. Yeah, this this specific this element of the story. If you're uh, making it up from whole cloth, then the empty tomb gets discovered by some rich, uh, high class dude. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> some some Jewish leader or somebody who everybody respects and loves finds a tomb and then tells everyone about it. And of course, everyone should trust this guy because you know he's an important dude. It seems to me that the the Jewish leaders and the Romans would have had reason to want to disprove this. Did they, do you have any evidence that they made any effort to like produce a body? Uh, yeah. So in the book of Matthew uh, chapter 28, uh, the Jews actually start disseminating this claim that the disciples stole the body and that's why the tomb is empty. So here, even the Jews, at least according to the Gospel of Matthew, are assuming the tomb is empty. Yeah. So, because that's not that doesn't that actually confirms that, right, that, that, that the, the tomb, tomb is, is empty. empty. It yeah. just somebody provides a rival <laughs> explanation for why it might be empty, right? Exactly. You'd think that the immediate response would be, "No, he's in the tomb," right? Like, right. If the body isn't actually missing for some reason, the obvious thing would be to provide the body. We don't see that response happening. So the, the, the assumption would be that the body is missing. Mm. Right. 
as our base assumption. And this is this is a point that's been made by people like William Lane Craig, and the, the thought is that it looks like in the Gospel of Matthew, when Matthew brings up this rumor uh, and says, and this rumor is spread among the Jews even to this day, that the body was stolen, um, it looks like he's entering into a pre-existing conversation. It doesn't look like he's just sort of made up this whole story about, oh, they said the the tomb was, uh, the body was stolen. Um, rather, it looks like he's trying to respond to that idea that's already out there somewhere, which is why he brings it up at all in his gospel. Yeah, you're suggesting that this is already a, a rumor that's going around or, or a claim that's being made right. pretty widely that Matthew is addressing, addressing explicitly. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's a polemical element even right. to him including this aspect of the story. Um, cool. There are a few people who would attempt to argue that the tomb wasn't actually empty. Um, and most of these are, are rejected by scholars, but we'll just briefly take a look at them. One is by this guy, Kursop Lachy, maybe. Uh, he's from Leiden, so uh, I guess that's Belgian or Flemish. Um, but he says, uh, he argues, well, there were lots of rock tombs everywhere, and lots of people had them, and they probably look pretty similar because they're rocks. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they probably just went to the wrong tomb, right? The women are they're distraught, they're in shock, this person they love just died. The events of the day before were really traumatic and kind of crazy. Uh, they're trying to do this somewhat secretly, maybe, because they don't necessarily want to be identified with Jesus. And they're coming back several days later. So he's suggesting they're, you know, they're wandering around. Oh, which, which one? Was it the one over there? Or was it the one over there? And, you know, they run into some gardener and he's like, oh, I don't know, maybe that one. And they go find some tomb and, oh, it's empty. Right? And actually... It, just was never full to begin with. Um, and there are a few uh, arguments against this fact, other than that most people reject it as being implausible. One, just from the gospel accounts themselves, it, uh, we're told there are grave clothes inside, kind of laid out as if a person had been in them. Well, actually, they were nicely folded, but it's just an odd thing to do if you have a grave that you haven't put anyone in yet. You're like, I don't know. We're going to bury somebody this in this in 10 years from now when my father dies. Let's just have some clothes in here just in case we need them later. <laughs> right? Like you just, you don't store things in tombs for the possible future. Um, so that's just an odd, would be an odd thing for there to be in, in a random empty tomb. The fact that, you know, they're going around telling, this wasn't like a, a one-time thing. They've been, they're going around perpetuating this claim that this tomb is empty. You think somebody would go back and verify Right, that it's a it's a radical claim. We see the disciples responding with doubt, confusion, disbelief. You think at least, and actually, the gospels tell us, and they go back and check. <laughs> right? Peter and John go run to the tomb. So uh, it just seems very unlikely that. And and again, looking at the claim that the Jews would have produced the body if they ha- if they could. Right, somebody would know. Hey, Joseph of Arimathea owns this tomb we'd figured out. So anyway, that's why most people reject this view because it's just very unlikely that this mistake would actually be made. Um, one New Testament scholar, Durham uh, Cranfield says it is difficult to imagine how a wrong to mistake would not have been quickly corrected. So, yeah, it's one of those views that, that kind of uh, smacks of just assuming that 
all people in the past were like stupider or more primitive in a, in a way that is almost certainly mm-hmm. not the case. Because it just imagine, oh yeah, they just had a bunch of rock tombs, and mm-hmm. yeah, I'm sure they couldn't have told told the difference between them. Like, oh, why? Why would you think that? Like, but you walk around in the graveyard, and you can't like find, uh, you know, the gravestone for your family member or that one that looked interesting to you before. Just killed like yesterday. Yeah, or the, yeah, yeah the, one, the one you literally just visited two days ago. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so let's assume the tomb is empty because that seems to be make most sense of the evidence. Um, but what about this claim in Matthew that the disciples stole the body? Um, well first, okay. So the Romans and Jews have no reason to steal the body. Um, if they had taken it for some reason, uh, we would assume they would have reproduced it like in the context of Matthew 28, where this dispute is obviously happening in public trying to argue over whether or not Christ has risen. We see Stephen making that claim boldly. We see that Peter making that claim boldly before the chief priests, before the leaders. Um, If they had Jesus' body, we would assume they would have produced it and said, hey, you're wrong. Um, Again, the Romans had no reason to take it. Uh, That that would make sense. Um, And would also have reason for potentially putting down this movement. But what if the disciples stole the body? Okay, so they're distraught over their leaders just died while the gospels seem to imply that they didn't understand any of Jesus's hints that he was going to resurrect these claims he was making. Maybe they uh, actually did pick up on those things and they thought, well, we're going to, we're going to make sure we're going to perpetuate this thing that Jesus rose is going to rise from the dead in three days. And we're going to make it happen. We're going to steal his body. There's be an empty tomb. Everyone will think he rose from the dead. So there's a few different reasons why this is very unlikely. Um, one is, and this is somewhat disputed as how strong this this is, but there's some evidence that the tomb was guarded. Um, so there's suggestion that there were soldiers there at the tomb. Uh, there even claims the soldiers fell asleep, and that's how the disciples got away with stealing the body, um, which seems unlikely. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're moving a giant rock up a, <laughs> up a hill, because right. they're like... Basically, they take these rocks and put them in these slots and then roll them downhill. They're set up so that you need several people to roll them back uphill. You know, I'm sure it's a pretty noisy process of stone grinding on stone and things like that. So, anyway. There are some other interesting reasons as far as them being Jewish. I mean, it would be incredibly dishonorable in general to disturb a grave. Um, Just in general. Uh, But especially them being Jewish. And this is actually... Uh, being part of Passover and all of that. Um, but that touching dead bodies results in ritual uncleanliness. So this is something that people generally avoided. So if they were to go steal this body, it would just be incredibly offensive thing to do. It doesn't seem like the kind of thing, right, that a Jewish person would do. It would be something they would have been uh, socialized never to do. Uh-huh. Yes, which doesn't mean that they couldn't possibly do it, but it means that they had very strong reason not to, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, it'd be very, very out of character culturally. Nice. Um, it was actually it was a, a decree of Caesar at one point to make it illegal to disturb tombs with capital punishment. Mm-hmm. So whether or not I'm not entirely sure whether or not that was in place at this moment, or what you know whether or not that would have been carried out here, but there seems to be a general. Uh, 
prohibition on uh, infiltrating tombs in any sense. Uh, Craig Keener says that carrying off the body uh, was so rare that it would shock those who heard of it. So this kind of tomb robbing was was such an unusual thing to happen that um, it's kind of an absurd suggestion to even make that they would steal the body. It's just not something people ever did. Uh, they left the clothes there, so that's kind of an odd thing to do, right? <laughs> if you're trying to quickly, discreetly sneak a body, why would you unwrap it and carefully fold the clothing and leave it on the bench? Right? You just grab the body, you get it out of there. Um, so that's a really odd, um, odd fact to fit with that. So one approach that a skeptic could take would be to say, well, I'm not going to take seriously all the details like that that are in the Gospels, I don't need to believe that all of those are right, um, like that they left the, the, the wrappings in the, in the grave. Um, some skeptics will only feel the burden of explaining sort of the main events, like the fact that the tomb was found sure. empty and so on, because those are much, there's much more evidence for the main events than there is for any given little detail. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think the big, the biggest one is the fact that the actions of the disciples subsequently, uh, in light of these claims that they're making that Jesus Christ, that, that this person has risen from the dead and they're going to go on and be tortured and suffer and die for this claim. Um, if they had knowingly stolen the body that whole time, doesn't make any sense of those actions. So as far as explaining their behavior, uh, it seems really hard to explain the behavior of the disciples mm -hmm. if they stole the body. Right. Yeah. And that's probably the strongest evidence against that claim that yeah. they stole the body. Right. Because it, it seems like the evidence for their sincerity could almost not be any stronger. Like how mm -hmm. could you have better evidence for the sincerity of the belief of a certain historical person. Mm -hmm. Another point against this view that um, William Lane Craig makes and uh, probably others as well, but um, is that the, the claims that the disciples were making downstream of the resurrection were really anachronistic. And so it doesn't look like the kind of story they would make up. And they're anachronistic in the, at least these two ways, the idea of a Messiah who died um, why didn't their belief that Jesus was the Messiah just uh, fade out at that point? Like, well, that didn't end the way it was supposed to, because that's not the <laughs> what what Messiah. You know, that's not what the Jews thought the Messiah was. Yeah. Like, see that, right? that evidence with Peter, the tension between Peter's conception of Jesus as military Messiah, the the Messiah like the worldly kind of Christ, mm -hmm. and then Jesus saying my kingdom's not of this world and mm -hmm. stop, don't fight. And if you're going to tell me not to die, then get behind me. Satan. Uh, on the road to Emmaus, you see exactly what you're saying, whether Jesus, Jesus is walking along with these two disciples and they say, we thought he was the Messiah, but then he died. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, right. So the very idea that, what we have here is a Messiah that was actually crucified and then later resurrected was not the picture of the Messiah that was floating around in the culture at that time. So that's kind of an anachronistic idea. And also their splitting of the resurrection into two parts was anachronistic saying, 
Yeah, there, sure, there's going to be this general resurrection at the end, but also there was this one that happened early and, mm-hmm. and came first, right? Also very anachronistic. So if if we want to go with this idea that the disciples just made this whole thing up, they stole the body and they cooked up this story, one of the problems with that view is that the story they made up doesn't look like the story they would have made up, given what we know about their immediate cultural context. Yeah. So... Tomb is empty. We don't think the disciples stole it, stole the body. But they go on to claim, even beyond that the tomb is empty, uh, is that they actually met this resurrected Jesus on quite a few occasions. Um, One of those elements um, that, again, similarly to the empty tomb, fits into this criterion of embarrassment, is that the first people to meet this resurrected Jesus, uh, are women. So in John 20, uh, Jesus appears to Mary at the tomb and interacts with her and talks to her. And so you get, um, and she even sort of touches him there. So right away you have this story that's being told that, Hey, Jesus, he's real. He's walking around. We've seen him. Well, how do you know? Well, this woman told us, right? That, that wouldn't be the way you'd want to start the story if you were trying to convince a bunch of people, unless that's actually what happened. Given that they were in this misogynistic culture. Yeah. That, G- yeah. Given the, the previous point that women were not considered to be reliable witnesses. Uh, then we have Jesus appearing to the apostles. There's some interesting elements of that that corroborate the way that account has played out. Uh, we have a this criterion of embarrassment again. So John uh, in chapter 20, again, he describes that, that they're hiding out in the upper room behind locked doors. So they're afraid. They're afraid for their lives because they're associated with this guy, Jesus, who just got executed for being a political dissident. Um, and they're hiding out afraid, which says several things that they're, <laughs> that doesn't paint them in a very good light for one. <laughs> they're a bunch of cowards. Uh, and two, they're not expecting Jesus to show up, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Which again, like if they kind of had pieced all this stuff together and were making up this story about, oh, Jesus is this Messiah who actually rises from the dead, surprise, you'd think they'd be doing things in such a way to show that they were expecting that, they're waiting for it to happen, uh, they knew it was going to happen. This is, um, I think it's actually somewhere uh, in the notes, I don't have in mind right here, but um, I th- in one of the apoc, I think it's the Gospel of Peter. Mm-hmm. Uh, the account of the resurrection has like everyone gathered around the tomb, <laughs> and this giant this voice comes from heaven, and these angels show up, and they're like hundreds of feet tall, right. and the tomb opens up, and then this cross jumps out of the tomb. And starts talking. Yep. Like, this is super bizarre. Yeah. And everyone's there. Like, Pilate and Herod. Yeah. And like, all, you know. It's like the end of, like, a Looney Tunes cartoon. I was going to say, like, it sounds more like a Dickens dream <laughs> sequence or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Something yeah. from... Right. So, yeah. So that... That's sort of what we expect to see in, like, a legendarized account. Right. Yeah. Right? Like, they're all there. They're waiting. It's, ex- it's exciting. Everybody's wowed by it. Instead, we have Jesus's faithful followers, the leaders of the other church, hiding out, afraid, uh-huh. uh, t- 
totally not expecting this to happen. Right. But that's the point that Blomberg makes uh, in his book. And even when he begins to appear to them, we see um, the Gospels reporting that not everybody was convinced, right? Mm-hmm. So you have the story of Doubting Thomas in chapter 20. That's kind of embarrassing. You, you know, he's one of the one of the 11, one of the big leaders in the church. Uh, and then in Matthew 28, uh, on the hill in Galilee, remember that little verse right near the end where it says, but some doubted, mm-hmm. right? We're talking about a crowd that's there and Jesus, the resurrected Jesus is right there. And the authors are still candid enough to say, you know, not everybody was convinced. Yeah. That's not the sort of thing that you invent if you're uh, just making up a story about a resurrection that you want to get people to believe. Mm-hmm. You don't keep giving them reason not to believe. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or, or tell them that they're in good company if they don't. Yeah. That's a, a point that I got from N.T. Wright, by the way. Mm. He made that observation about Matthew 28. And then it was yeah. the thing about Thomas. I was just reading about that recently in Murray Harris in his book about um, theos as applied to Jesus in the New Testament. Um, Okay, a couple other things here. We've got uh, multiple attestation going on. So that means uh, a number of different sources, both attesting to these appearances. So these are cited both we've got in the Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John. Then Acts, uh, we've got the book of Acts. But then we also have 1 Corinthians, which I actually started out this episode with, is this quote from Paul talking about uh, how in accordance with the scriptures, Jesus was was raised. And then he talks about these appearances. So he talks about, uh, again, the appearances to Peter, to the 12, and he actually has 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, um, most of whom are still living, which seems to be making the point that Hey, you can go talk to these people. They're <laughs> they're still hanging out. Like, hey, hey, Joe, over there. Like, remember when we saw Jesus? Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, he appeared to James, all the apostles, and then Paul says he appeared to me. Um, obviously, that is a, a sort of a different uh, experience. Paul's experience, as accounted in Acts nine uh, and Galatians, um, then essentially because that's he's sort of experiencing the ascended Christ, which we'll talk about more. In episode four. Uh, so some things about that creed, uh, I will say, are the fact that it's something that Paul is passing on to them. The creed, they're assuming, is could be from as early as the 30s. I think the usual argument, and, and Gary Habermas really presses this argument, um, is that, so we know from Galatians, uh, certain dates at which Paul visited the apostles in Jerusalem. And that's going to be the occasion on which he was most likely to have received a creed like the one he's reciting in 1 Corinthians 15. Yeah. And, and so that's what allows um, uh, scholars to date that creed to the early 30s, because that's when Paul would have uh, gone to, that's when Paul went, first went to Jerusalem and met with Peter and James. And moreover, since it was already a creed at that point, it has to be old enough, even in the early thirties to have been formulated and put mm-hmm. into practice as like a, something that's recited. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. he also, Habermas also makes the comment that <clears throat> there are certain Aramaisms. So the language of, of having received and passing on, uh, is a very rabbinic terminology. Like you, you receive something from, your 
your rabbi and you pass it on to another. So that even that language is a very much fits uh, what would have been his experience with the early disciples in Jerusalem. Right. And suggests that the creed was originally in Aramaic. Coming from that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. And so he's translating it into Greek to put it in his letter. Mm-hmm. So that suggests that the creed was part of a <clears throat> apostolic community that would have been like part of Jesus's group then that's, that's right. the of that. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's in the language that they would have been using at that time. Yeah. And it's not in the language that Paul was writing in when he wrote the letter. Yeah. So the creed is definitely earlier than the letter. And because of the connection with Galatians, probably very early, like within the first uh, three to eight years after yeah. Jesus resurrection. And part of the significance <laughs> of that, right. Is so the creed is specifically telling us making these resurrection claims um, and if this is something, even in the fifties, I mean, even that would be very early, traditionally speaking or historically speaking, let's say Paul was making this up in the fifties. We'd say, well, you know, it's been 20 something years been 20 years, maybe he's making this up or it's been enough time and he's writing this in a different, you know, to people in a different city. This could be legendarized at this point. Right. And uh-huh. I mean, even historically, this is really soon for that sort of thing to happen. Uh-huh. That sort of adaptation. Uh, but the early dating of the creed means that this is being, these claims are being made in this creed, which we're assuming is being sort of codified and passed around in the context where the events took place, very close to when the events took place, meaning that there wasn't time for things to be legendarized. Uh, and again, having certain elements that are falsifiable, like the tomb and the body, um, shows that these aren't things that were made up later, but were being, these claims were being made at the time in Jerusalem, really close to when the events were said to have occurred. Okay. So the, the claim is that this is the resurrected Jesus who is resurrected in bodily form and has appeared to all these people. Are there alternative possibilities to explain experience of resurrection and that the tomb is also empty. Right. Yeah. Okay. So we have both of these things we have to deal with an empty tomb and a bunch of people saying, definitely I've experienced that. I met Jesus. Right. Yeah. And actually the, the fact that the disciples had, uh, experiences that they interpreted as experiences of the resurrected Jesus is even more like solidly historically established and widely accepted than the fact of the empty tomb these mm. days. So this is like, because of the subsequent behavior of the apostles. Well, that and also the attestation. Um, so it's this is very much a datum. This is mm. this is something that any uh, one approaching the subject has to deal with. Yeah. So the, the issue will be, how do we explain what the disciples experienced? Mm-hmm. Um, because the evidence is, seems very, very clear. They had some kind of experience. Yes. And that's just the question. So, yeah. so some possible explanations, uh, one that, um, I will just briefly mention is the swoon theory, which is, <laughs> Jesus was in this horrible pain, and so he sort of passed out, and, well, these really dumb ancient people thought, oh, he seems dead. They took him down, they put him in the grave, he woke up a little while later, he's like, oh, I'm feeling a little better now, and got up and, I don't know, 
maybe rolled the stone away or got help or something. And then he, he walked around and everyone's like, oh, Jesus, you're back. Great. <laughs> this is like the Monty Python theory. <laughs> I'm not quite dead yet. <laughs> not dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, this is just kind of a silly one from what we know of Roman crucifixion. Um, just for anyone to even survive crucifixion um, is so unlikely. Obviously, if we, you know, the reliability the reliability of the accounts of that, I mean, Jesus being stabbed or them doing other things to make sure the bodies were dead before taking them off. The Romans were basically professional killers. Like this is what they do. They're really good at it. Roman soldiers train to kill people. Well, it's in like lots the, of contexts. It's like the, uh, account you were bringing up towards the beginning in that it assumes that, people from long ago must have been much stupider or primitive than we are now. It's that yeah. sort of uh, progressive uh, idea of history that as time goes on, we obviously just get smarter and more advanced. And so you can assume that, oh, that people from long ago must have been dumb. Or they would have made mistakes, like mm-hmm. not yeah. knowing if someone was dead or not. Yes. I think Which C.S. Is- Lewis called that chronological snobbery. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> It's a definite chronological snobbery. So I do like the point on this, though, that just just for the imagination, but even if by some miracle Jesus did survive crucifixion and is buried in the tomb, nobody seeing him resuscitated and walking around (laughs) would think that he had been resurrected, right? Like this (laughs) this guy would be in such a horrible physical condition (laughs) if he is even on his feet nobody's like wow look at this miracle they're like look at this guy who's basically dead like, <laughs> yeah yeah like there's yeah. just nobody would mistake that for some kind of miraculous occurrence right. because he would be in such terrible physical shape mm-hmm. um yeah it wouldn't look like he'd been resurrected it would look like he had barely survived <laughs> a roman crucifixion right looked like john, john rambo or <laughs> john McClane or something like that at the end of a harrowing yeah, action film. Oh, so yeah. So I'm gonna set that one aside. Uh, yeah, Jesus died. We're pretty. Everyone's pretty set on that. Um, but some of the other uh, big uh, explanations that have been more, I don't know, have come up again and again. And one is the hallucination exp- uh, account. So they just basically just they imagined they saw Jesus, right? whether it's through trauma or they're all drinking the same water. I don't know. Some kind of medicinal plants they were on. I don't know, but they, they had this experience of Jesus. They thought they saw Jesus again. This is, has to explain the actions of the disciples subsequently. So right. They go on and they're willing to give their lives. Yeah. So they have to be totally convinced yeah. that they actually experienced Jesus. Yeah. Um, so it has to be some kind of intention intense psychic experience yeah. where they, they think they've physically touched him. They've eaten with him or, or something like that. Yeah. Um, so some issues with this, uh, well, first off, it doesn't account for the fact that the body was missing. So you have to have, you still have to have an alternative theory that somehow the body is missing. Um, which again, it's really hard to pair the theory of the hallucination with disciples stealing the body. Right, yeah. Because if they had the kind of experience that convinced them Jesus was up and walking around, and they knew they had the body sitting in a cellar somewhere, that, that seems really incompatible. 
Right. Of course, I um, guess you can just say everyone hallucinated an empty tomb, including <laughs> all the all the Jews who the went city. on it. The whole city. <laughs> all of Jerusalem. If you're getting into mass hallucinations, yeah, you can just right. say maybe whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that becomes obviously much less plausible at that point. But I think some people have also tried, I, I can't remember who off the top of my head, maybe Bart Ehrman has suggested something like this. Uh, say like some of Jesus followers stole the body without telling the others. And then others of them ended up finding the tomb empty. And then it, that like triggered hallucinations of a resurrected Jesus, something like that. Yeah. Might be a way to try to make it work. Wow. It's very strange. It's less implausible than other claims. Right. Yeah. It's, it's an improvement over some of the <laughs> other bad theories, but it's still quite bad. For some of the reasons you're about to enumerate, yeah. some other problems with the hallucination hypothesis. So, I mean, some of this is the just the mass hallucination problem, right? So, yep. the claims come from a bunch of different sources and a bunch of different people. Uh, even up to, Paul claims, 500 people at once. Um, mm-hmm. And psychologists will just say this is impossible. Like, you can't, it's like having a bunch of people having the same dream, right? Like, you can't, you can't have the same dream as someone else. Like, it's this private event happening in your mind. You can't share it with another person. Um, this also is claimed to have taken place over 40 days. So this isn't like a one single episode, right? It's something that's happening over a prolonged period of time. Some of these people are claiming to have ex- had this experience multiple times over this time period. Um, you also have the element of eating and drinking. So the kind of psychological experience it would have to be is not just an apparition of some kind mm-hmm. or like seeing this imagining seeing someone or having this hallucination of seeing someone, but actually touching them, interacting with them, eating with them. You have this physicality. Yeah. Um, the other element again with the, with the touching and, and feeling all that is that the Jewish concept of resurrection was necessarily a physical one, right? So whatever the, whatever these disciples are experiencing has to be something physical. Yep. Um, so I think that's sort of a, another level of hallucination that a bunch of people would be having to have to have this physical encounter with somebody. What you mean, like tactile, like touching? Yeah, yes, it's like touching, hugging, yeah. eating that kind of those kind of uh, interactions. You'd have to have like some beautiful mind stuff going on for all of the disciples. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Which, it just seems really right. Hard like to all of the disciples, and 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 this is a point other people have made, of course, too. Whatever story you give about the immediate followers of Jesus, like if you try to make it like, you know, it was their grief at their loss that somehow mm. provoked these, then you have to tell a different story about Paul because Paul wasn't one of the original disciples who would have been grieving the loss of Jesus when he was resurrected. So like Gerd Ludemann is one of the big proponents of the hallucination hypothesis. And so he has one story that he tells about the original disciples and a whole different story he tells about why Paul was caused to have a hallucination of Jesus. And, and you know, that starts to get really kind of ad hoc feeling mm. and stuff. So, so one way to like kind of sum up all the worries that yeah. we've been talking about, about like different types of hallucinations, I think it's N.T. Wright who said this originally and then William Craig kind of echoes him on this. Basically, what you have to do, they say, is you have to cobble together a bunch of different psychological phenomena from the scientific literature in order to make sense of all the experiences. Um, So even if you can find, like, 
a case of, well, maybe there is some kind of a group hallucination thing that can happen over here. Maybe you can have grief-induced hallucination, right? You have to cobble together a bunch of different things. Is, is, that's actually the word that Craig uses. He might have been quoting MT, right? Um, in order to explain all the, the data. And then on top of that, N.T. Wright really emphasizes this point as well. The ancient people, they knew about these weird psychic things, whether they would have called them hallucinations or not, right? But they knew about things like visions and apparitions and, and the sorts of things that people still report today, like uh, apparitions of loved ones who have just died and stuff. Mm. And he <laughs> emphasizes this fact that when you have experiences like that, you don't take it as evidence that the person has been resurrected. You take it as evidence that they're dead. Hmm. So why would those experiences have led the disciples to believe that Jesus had been resurrected rather than confirmed their belief that he was dead? Now, in some yeah. respects, you might think the ancient Near Eastern uh, person would be more likely to take an extraordinary hallucinatory experience and identify it as a vision or a, or something yeah. supernatural and non-veridical than we would. Right. Where, yeah. you know, we who are empiricists by nature and tend to want to just think like, oh, all my experiences are the things that come from my five senses. Uh, we'd be much more inclined to just take an experience and attribute it to something in reality because we think all, all the things we're experiencing are coming from our, our senses. Um, yeah. All right. Well, a couple other quick things. Uh, so yeah, if is this just a big conspiracy, right? With all of the, uh, all of these claims of appearances, maybe they all got together and were like, Hey guys, what if we run around and told everybody that we saw Jesus? Like, wouldn't that be cool? Um, you have the same problem as a stolen body, account, which is the subsequent behavior of the disciples assumes a certain level of sincerity and conviction that there's just no way to account for um, unless they really believe this thing happened. Um, now you could say, well, some of the disciples made it up and convinced all the other ones, but at least from, from what we know or what we uh, are told in tradition and history is that the, of the 11 of the original disciples, all but John are executed uh, at some point in the near future. So it seems, you know, if those are the people who probably would be getting this rumor going, it seems unlikely that all of them would experience some kind of, of torture and most of them execution to defend this claim knowing it was false the entire time. Even John doesn't necessarily live a cushy life either, right? Right. Yeah. Oh, he. I mean, he he is tortured. He just doesn't have. He just doesn't have to be executed. He gets, he gets uh, uh, exiled and sent off to an island instead. Yeah, so just ends his life sitting in a <laughs> cave on Patmos. Yeah. So, this episode uh, we looked at some explanations on the empty tomb and resurrection appearances made in the four Gospels and in the Epistles of Paul. I was going to conclude with this really long quote from Gary Habermas, Habermas, but I might. Uh, go with the shorter one from uh, Anthony Flew. says, the evidence for the resurrection is better than for claimed miracles in any other religion. It's outstandingly different in quality and quantity. And that's from a renowned atheist. All right, that's episode two of part two of our course, Can We Trust the Gospels? 
We looked at some evidence for the resurrection. Next time we're going to look at what some people think are some discrepancies in the resurrection accounts. And Justin's going to lead us through that discussion. So we hope that you'll join us in a couple weeks for that episode on the Mercy House University podcast. See you then.